Cornel West says, social justice is what love looks like on the street, just like tenderness is what love looks like in private. My calling, my offering to the world is really a conversation about how we heal. The moments of height, the moments of the mountaintop are not enough. We need relational engagement, each ceremonial healing, our own process of truth and reconciliation so that we can understand how we heal. Welcome to Voices of Esalen, I'm Sam Stern. Today my guest is Dr. Melody Hayes, an evidence-based and spiritually-centered medical expert in the emerging clinical science of psychedelic medicine. Dr. Hayes is a graduate of Harvard and UCSF Medical School. She's an anesthesiologist, leader, public speaker, and founding member of Decriminalized Nature. She's also the founder of Bay Area Clinic that offers psychedelic ketamine therapy and creator of How We Heal, an online community of healers and leaders committed to creating belonging, safety, and health for all people, particularly those from historically marginalized communities. I grew up in Southern California, Long Beach, Compton, and Carson. Went to public schools, inner city schools the whole time. I, there's this really interesting thing. I think there was an external environment and there was my own internal environment, meaning that I remember when the Watts riot happened, I was living in Compton. You know, there was broken glass on the street. You can smell the burning of the city in the neighborhood. It wasn't a good neighborhood. But then there was my own internal environment. And where I lived was in libraries. Um, there was this library in downtown Long Beach that I would go to all the time that had a little like a bathtub with pillows in it. And you just like lay there as a kid and just like read a book. And so I kind of lived in the library and in my dreams and fantasies. And there was always this kind of other world that I kind of maybe tucked myself away from. Well, talk to me a little bit about your journey of, of becoming a doctor. Like what led you down that path to want to help people and heal people? Oh, I've always been a little bit of a engineer of healing um, mm -hmm. in terms of how do I, how can I contribute to making people better? So my first start, I was a sociology major in college. Um, and I really, I said under the most excellent educators, uh, Cornell West, William Julius Wilson, mm -hmm. Catherine Newman, some of the top, top philosophers um, and sociologists and ethnographers were my instructors. And I really was pursuing a path of becoming a, so, uh, like a sociology PhD. So I was just like very passionately involved in that endeavor. And then I talked to Dr. Newman, Professor Newman, who uh, just was my, I idolized. And I just said, you know, so what is the result of all this research? She did such amazing ethnographies on the the working poor, and I read such inspiring books about the line of divides between race, class, and gender, and I just was like on fire for telling stories that reveal the human experience. Mm. Um, because I think that sometimes we don't experience the richness and the oneness uh, that we all are, because the stories that we tell separate one another from, from each other. And so I was like, I'm going to be an ethnographer and I can tell these stories and give humanity to populations who other people may not recognize. Mm. And coming from my experience of, you know, growing up black and working class and living in the inner city, when I got to Harvard, I'm just like, there was such a big divide between people who had never had adversity, understanding of what that lived experience was like. And I'm like, maybe if there was just evocative narrative telling we could close this divide and create policies that really help all people, help and support all people. And it was very interesting because in that course, I read uh, books, also the ethnography of the rich. 
So books like Preparing for Power, where I learned about elite boarding school culture mm -hmm. and that kind of a socialization, which was really just also very useful to understand. When I understood that my hopes of changing the world were by getting my book, you know, my master's thesis in the hand of the right policymaker, I was like, that feels too vague and uncertain and a little bit, you know, theoretical. I want to concretely help people. And I had taught in a middle school as kids who came from disadvantaged backgrounds. We had connected one student who had really bowed legs that he would grow up to be disabled if he didn't get surgical intervention. We were able to connect him to hospital care, straighten his legs. It was amazing because he was like wobbly even when he walked. And I was like, boom, I want to be a doctor because I know that if I set legs at the end of the day, I know I've done something, but if I wrote some like policy recommendations, I don't know. But it's, it's very interesting because actually my whole life now is going back to policy and how do we create love? How do we live love as social justice actually through policy? So an interesting, uh, this whole experience in learning about psychedelic healing has gotten me back to the place of policy. Mm, yeah, that's, that's wild. I mean, you seem to me to be the kind of person who just gets it in her mind that she can do and be anything that she wants. It's, it's really impressive. I really, um, I feel this contagious kind of enthusiasm coming from you. That's one of the reasons I really enjoy talking to you. Deb, how did you read my spirit? How did you read my spirit? <laughs> that, is, that is very true. That is very true. Yeah. <laughs> so I, so uh, I am not a psychedelic therapist. What I do is create an environment for psychedelic therapists to work. So I did training with Matt to better be able to facilitate MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. However, I'm a proud anesthesiologist. I took care of a patient with Wolf Parkinson's white, last, white syndrome last week, had really fun managing or being concerned about, you know, arrhythmias. I'm a happy anesthesiologist, but also I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a visionary and I want to contribute to this, this methodology of healing that was profoundly transformative for me mm -hmm. uh, when I got medical treatment with, uh, with psychedelics. And so ketamine is one of the medicines in my box that as an anesthesiologist that is profoundly effective. And lo and behold, just to learn personally um, for medical treatment that it completely can change one's life in terms of depression. And so that reframed my whole experience. Mm. You know, one of the things that I think of as the role of an anesthesiologist is a shepherd. You know, you're in a very challenging time in your life and I'm going to shepherd you safely through the experience by creating the, the, the clinic in a way I'm bringing therapists together who can then shepherd people through their own journey. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm curious about ketamine in general. When I came of age, ketamine was kind of a club drug. That was the only environment that I knew of that humans were, were taking it. In these days, it's sort of become the first psychedelic off the shelf to be legitimized and legal. I mean, I think you told me in our previous uh, interview on Voices of Esalen that it never, it never was illegal. It was always legal because it's a, an anesthetic. Talk to me about the magic of ketamine. Wh why do you believe in it and what can it do as, as a medicine for people? Again, from, from the pr perspective of how it's traditionally used, it's used in uh, really, ketamine is one of the most hemodynamically stable, which means it does not drop your blood pressure. If you were bleeding out or sanguinating in the field, such as uh, in Vietnam, which is when ketamine, uh, in, war, in, in situations of wars where ketamine is uh, frequently used, it's amazing that your blood pressure will be low and it can give you a medication that controls pain, that gives you amnesia so you don't have to feel, remember the acute incidents of your, your, your leg being torn off. It gives you amnesia, it treats your pain, 
with your blood pressure being low with the ketamine, it does, it actually can like help augment blood pressure. So it's a very, what we call hemodynamically safe anesthetic. It's been used in trauma. It's been used in veterinary medicine and has this very interesting mechanism of action called, it's a dissociative anesthetic. The person can be moving, but their body and their consciousness are now separated. So their body and their consciousness are all are separated. When you witness someone who actually is under ketamine for say a traumatic injury, they can still be moving and everything, but they won't necessarily have a memory of this trauma. So yeah, it's a profound anesthetic. And then in the treatment of chronic pain, there is a function almost called a reset button. So it can profoundly decrease. If you have chronic pain and you're taking you know, large numbers of opioids every day, it can be a reset button for, uh, for you in regards to decreasing your opioid requirements. You know, there's many pain conditions for which it's, it's uh, being shown to be useful. I believe there was also, I've been reading about like neurological conditions, new neurological conditions that people are experiment, experimenting with ketamine. So for chronic pain, it's a profoundly effective treatment. Complex regional, uh, regional pain syndrome, really effective because it gets at this thing that we call neuropathic pain. Neuropathic pain is like, how do I explain it? It can be numbness and tingling, but really it's, it's like pain that's like, kind of, I'll just say as an analogy to how we transition to maybe it being useful in a place of depression, is the, it's like pain in your nervous system, right? Um, all pain is kind of in your nervous system, but there is a way where neuropathic pain is persistent, intractable, and there's a way in which depression can be persistent and intractable. And ketamine, even for depression, is, again, a reset button. Um, depression, anxiety, PTSD, OCD are conditions where ketamine has been found to be clinically useful. And, again, it is the only medically available right now until MDMA and psilocybin become available. It's the only medically available medication that produces a psychedelic experience. So let's just actually, I'm going to talk about, talk back up and talk about science scientifically. What do we mean by this psychedelic experience? What do we mean? Psychedelic, the word kind of means mind manifesting. So this psychedelic experience that we're seeing that ketamine can occasion, I would say that it's an experience of expansion and it's definitely experience that has spiritual dimensions and that can occasion experience of transcendence. And classically, people come to the to the experience of knowing themselves as being part of the, the collective oneness, that we are all one. Mm. And it creates the, some of the neurological results that are analogous to long-term med meditation. Um, so it can reset the default mode network, which is basically analogous in the Buddhist tradition of the ego. So it for a moment, zen clap, your ego is turned off just for a moment. So ego dissolution. So these medications, ketamine, psilocybin, can occasion those things. Although the evidence for default mode network that that is turned off is better with traditional psychedelics like psilocybin. That is now how ketamine is being used as a part of psychedelic assisted therapy. How would someone decide that, that ketamine was gonna be right for them? Like, what person would be like the, great, the perfect candidate for ketamine assisted therapy? And, and how long does it take? Like what's, the, what's that experience like? Ketamine in particular, how would a person know that it's right for them? I would say that the clinical indications so far, this is kind of a little bit of off-label usage for ketamine, but the clinical evidence for usage so far is for OCD, PTSD, depression, and 
and in some cases, anxiety. So mm-hmm. those are some of the conditions that you're, you're struggling with. And I would just, I will, when we say the word PTSD, I will broaden that to include race-related trauma because we generally think of PTSD as the result of sexual trauma or, or war, but there's a lot of trauma associated with experiencing violence or increased violence against yourself because of being a person of color or being trans. PTSD can include a, a large population of people who we may not think of traditionally as being victims of violence, but it is indeed um, one of the indications. Mm, thank you for, for bringing that up, you know, and that really dovetails nicely with some stuff that I wanted to ask you about having to do with diversity, you know, and accessibility, questions of accessibility within the, the psychedelic community and within psychedelic psychotherapy. So just kind of wanted to pose this question. Is, is there any shadow to your mind within the psychedelic community of a, a lack of a kind of diversity or lack of accessibility to all people? So it's very interesting because I was on the consciousness panel with Michael Pollan, with you know a lot of the top, other top leaders in the psychedelic medicine education community. And it was very interesting. We had a discussion. And I think one of the things that was pointed out is that the psychedelic community is parallel and analogous to most communities in America, meaning that you go to you know scientific conferences and maybe they're primarily white and psychedelic conferences are analogous. Which is interesting because people who, you know, talk about psychedelics or maybe have had psychedelic experiences have these experiences of dissolving the individuality from the ego and knowing that we're all one. Mm-hmm. And so it's almost as though there's a part of the psychedelic community that is a spiritual community. And if that's the case, how, how are people living their spirituality? And I, I really believe that the path of spirituality is going from individual to collective in decreasing the others. And so when you look at the level of spiritual evolution of certain great people, let's take the example of Gandhi. So in his spiritual evolution, he, instead of calling the cast of untouchables other, he wanted to dissolve that, right? And instead of having policies that excluded Muslims, he wanted to include that population. When you look at the evolution of Nelson Mandela and his vision for the future of South Africa to not create or persist in an animosity against whites, but to include the whole community in a process of healing. That means we're all a part of the process and we are all one, right? And so King's vision is that we don't hate the white men we hate the racism that's inside of him. But some would say that King's thoughts is that there's a need to be in relationship so that one can rehabilitate someone so deformed by racism, Mm -hmm. whose character is so deformed or consciousness is so deformed by racism. And so those, those perspectives are of a march toward oneness and inclusion and mm-hmm. traditionally religions have have all had an aspect of this how can we include the marginalized the example of christ and how his work were to make the people in that society at that time who were the untouchables the unclean the prostitute the leper the people who were unloved by that society those were the people jesus hung with <laughs> you know i always say that you know if jesus was 
present right now, he would be hanging with a black trans woman, right? Because <laughs> these are the populations of people who said, no, we're, you know, we have to love the excluded, right? That, that is part of the spiritual progression, right? Making what's profane, the relationship between profane and sacred and how our society creates these distinctions that our heart doesn't know, right? Mm -hmm. When you ask me the question about the psychedelic community and inclusion and diversity, I guess I would say, what is the psychedelic community itself getting from its own experiences with psychedelics? Mm -hmm. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share an example that was shared with me because this is very telling. Um, you asked me in our previous interview, do psychedelics make people like, does it cure racism? Yeah. Pause for several beats. And I was like, puzzling. I was just like, and I've gotten into so much deeper thought and reflection about this. So I, I really appreciate the question from you. And you know, my response was no, it doesn't, but we do. We, we heal the wounds of racism. We take out the seed of racism that was planted in us through work, through relationship, right? Through, through critical um, evaluations of your heart and your consciousness, right? So let me just give you an example that was shared with me. Um, this man was on a, a ayahuasca retreat and there was someone else in that retreat who just had this massive opening and massive healing. And he acknowledged that like, you know, he was just, a, you know, a person who th they had space to grow, like meaning there was maybe violence against his partner, et cetera. And so that they were having these massive opening experiences where he's confessing and he just wants to be healed and he wants to heal yet back at their hut or whatever people on these retreats stay in the person was on a call with their wife who was who was pregnant at the time and there was still that aggression so between the ceremonies he's like yelling at his wife and so these moments of extreme openness and love and what's the work to take that home What's the work to take that home and be actually a different person in your relationships? That's a lot of interpersonal work. That's a lot of, you know, things like nonviolent communication, authentic communication so that people can actually live the truth of love. So when you ask me, I'm going back to the question about the psychedelic community. It's really a decision not to just experience a peak of love, but to how do you live your life as love? your behaviors, your speech, your relationships, and your commitments. And what I'm thinking about increasingly is Cornel West says that social justice is what love looks like on the street, just like tenderness is what love looks like in private. My calling, my offering to the world is really a conversation about how we heal. The moments of height, the moments of the mountaintop, are not enough. We need relational engagement, deep ceremonial healing, our own process of truth and reconciliation so that we can understand how we heal. And so I've, I'm working on launching a campaign right now that I call How We Heal. And it's more than a conversation, it's actually commitments of action for people to come together, be in community, learn more about the history of uh, racism and segregation and how that's been propagated in our society mm. and how do we actually heal from that. Mm. And really that healing is a deep internal process, but it's also transpersonal, meaning you have to be in relationship. 
to uh, be a part of that healing experience, that healing. So the facilitate groups of people coming together and really diving deep. You know, the idea is we can have CEOs come, come together and do this deep work. Right now, the way institutions are set up, you have a DEI, diversity and inclusion um, expert who goes in this organization and does a teaching session. And I'm like, no, that's not how things work. Brene Brown says, who you are is how you lead. So really your heart sets the path of the organization. So we need leaders who have DEI in their heart, who have history and love and understanding in their heart so that they can understand and hold these values and then lead their organizations from that. I, I have a background in dancing. I like ballroom and like salsa. And your core is actually how you hold yourself and how you hold the frame of dancing. And you lead, especially tango, there's this connection from the core. You lead with that. And so from your core, you can do amazing spins and amazing tricks. But the core needs to actually embody and understand the principles of love and how we create a society and a community that's based in love, you know? So I've, I've gone back to my policy point. I'm just like, okay, how do we get back into policies that create the, the love that we want to see? How can people find out about how we heal and participate in the, the project that you're stewarding? They can go to drmelody.com. That's uh, Dr. M-E-L-L-O-T-Y. So two L's of melody.com and sign up for a newsletter. And soon I'll be sending out more information. Also, they can um, follow the instructions there on the website to actually share their story of healing with psychedelic medicines. I really want more people to share their stories of how they healed and also pivot from talking about individual wellness to collective well-being. One of the things I want to highlight, I, I don't know if this is very, it's very apparent to me as a sociologist, as a physician, we talk a lot about individual healing, meaning that you individually have a monoamine deficiency, you individually have this kind of relationship dysfunction or something like that. But you look at the um, research on trauma, you look at the research of early adverse childhood events, mm -hmm. you look at the research based on social inequality. And we know that social inequality trauma, early adverse childhood events are all things that contribute to depression, anxiety, increased risk for coronary artery disease, increased risk for obesity, increased risk for cancer. So we're used to talking about individual agency and individual like illness lies in the individual, but really the illnesses that individuals are manifesting are a function of the inequality and adversity contained in that society. Instead of merely talking about pursuing a path of individual wellness, which is wonderful, that gets people to the conversation, how can we talk about how do we create more wellness for everybody? Because your individual struggles would not be as bad if you were living in a society that had more social equity. Your individual sense of unsafety wouldn't be as bad if we had a society where we didn't make one population the boogeyman. All of these ways are social ways that we actually mediate and create safe, safeness. Someone said that we can't create happiness through policies, but we can really take away the things that mediate unhappiness. Economic insecurity, healthcare insecurity, food insecurity. So those things are very much 
things that you can intervene on through policies and they are the creators of un- unhappiness, you know? Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. I, lo- I just love listening to you and this understanding I have of you as a change agent. I'm, I want to bring this back to a, a quote. I'm going to quote you. I was just listening to an interview that you gave to Charles Eisenstein. And I found this quote really interesting. You said, being an African-American, you have to tell your own stories because the stories that are written are not about you. So talk to me a little bit about telling your own story. This is one of my favorite topics. Thank you so much for uh, doing your doing so much research and like uh, finding this quote. I, I really, I love this. This is one of my favorite topics. It's really one of the things that I think is, you know, there actually is a, a branch of therapy called narrative, narrative therapy. Mm. What I call this is story medicine. You really actually have to tell yourself the story that will heal your life. Mm-hmm. And if you go into research, you know, they're actually, uh, the way you talk about yourself, you know, I'll just reverse it. Normally we think, oh, you have a biochemical disorder, it's creating these thoughts. What if we reversed it? What if I told, had different thoughts and I could heal my biochemistry? What if by speaking love and saying things that are, that, uh, are loving and less divisive, what if through those actions I produce oxytocin and I produce serotonin? So this is the process of story medicine. So this is actually how you have to create narratives because our self-identity, our self from a philosophical point of view, what is this? But it is a series of experiences and reflections that we, we've accumulated that creates a narrative. But what if you become the author of your own story? And I think that people in any period of transformation they have to change their story. So psychedelics come in, neuroplasticity is created. Those circuits, how they wire together, you have a, have an opportunity to have them to fire together in a different way by telling your new story. So that's story medicine. And people who, if you've been a part of any um, alternative community, you'll notice that the you have to start telling stories that include your own history and your own uh, capacities, right? And so there was an example of a, there were young environmental activists from all over the world who were invited to be together. And a photograph was taken of these amazing, young, passionate leaders. It was three women. And the photograph was, I'm sorry, it was four women, four women. And the photograph was taken of them. And the, the picture that was published, however, was of three women. And the three women who were included in the photo, and one was cropped out. The three women who were included in the photo were white, and they cropped out the black woman who's also an activist, an African woman who's also an activist, also an environmentalist. And what I experienced in that story is over and over again, the American story of cutting out the contribution of people of color when they tell narratives of their creation, right? And so knowing this, you know, knowing this, you have to become the author of your own story to own your own abilities. And that's for everyone. And society is doing a particular thing to every person. Society is doing a particular thing to every, it's jamming you to a system, you know, for, for men, it's jamming you to a system where maybe your emotions and your sensitivities cannot be acknowledged or expressed, right? Because that's what, not what a man is supposed to do, right? You know, and maybe for a woman, there's like powers and potentials in you that it's like, no, 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 that's not normal, right? For every community that you're part of, there's ways in which the dominant narratives do not serve you. You have to go and do the excavation, do the research, do the self-discovery to find those 
parts, those lost parts that were probably taken from you. And really as a person of color, as a person who's queer, as a person who has abilities in a different kind of body, you have to actually do the work to understand who you are, separate of reflections and projections. Mm. The society is constantly projecting onto your body. For me, you know, as for example, as a woman of color, how do I tell stories that, rec- that claim and reclaim my beauty? Just the pathology of believing what is told about you versus what you know from spirit to be true of you. And everyone has to separate from that. You have a responsibility through story medicine, through narrative work, to tell your own story, to become the author of your own story, and therefore script it out how you want the results to come out. Do you hold, I know psychedelics can't cure racism, but do you hold optimism for the practice of psychedelic medicine in allowing people to apprehend their own story and perhaps become like the driver of their own story in the same way that, you know, ketamine is a dissociative and it can kind of bring you into this, that Zen moment and drop everything. Is there a way that that psychedelic healing can allow somebody to become the, the driver of their own narrative? This is really a great question. And it's really, uh, this is again, this is over and over again. Uh, I put a tool in your hands. Mm-hmm. It's very sharp. And through the context that you're in and the choices that you make, you decide the meaning of that tool. Is that a tool that you're going to use to perform surgery? Is it a scalpel? Is it a knife? You know, is it, is it something that can harm? And what I really hold is that there are at least two factors that's going to predict your out, the outcome to your psych- someone's psychedelic experience. The intention you set, so any spiritual process, what you give your attention to grows, right? Where the, they say it, the attention goes, energy flows. And so for your intention, if your intention is to heal whatever in you that stops you from seeing everyone as loved and lovely, um, worthy and whole, made in the image of the sparkly magic that some, some people call God, if that's your intention, you will experience that. And I actually believe that holding attention, not just for your own healing, but for the healing of all being, amplifies your practice, your spiritual practice. It's like the meta practice, you know? But holding the intention that's beyond you is the most healing thing because you connect with the suffering of all people and the worthiness of all people. But actually, it depersonalizes, it distances you from your own individual story which is very good. Cognitive distancing is really good for your own ability to heal. The people who are holding you while in transformation, those people can be community and the values that they hold. They can be your therapists and the intentions that they hold for you. Those people also are very formative in shaping outcomes. We can actually, we can talk about the, there's a, a factor in, in education sociology. It's kind of like how you, you have this prediction about a student and sure enough, people will become that prediction. Yep. Your therapist or your community will hold an, an attention or you can call it have a prediction for you and you, will, you can become that. So educators do it, your parents do it and whatever direction it is, it's an it's kind of like from a place of energy. It's an energetic field that's holding you as a possibility or problematic. 
So what is the environment holding you as? Is the possible, you know, if they're holding you as, I see you healed well, and I know that you can recover from this, that's actually energy and chemistry for the magic. So it's not just you, it's also the environment you are in. So when you want to create transformation for yourself, what community and what people are around you who are projecting their energies and their beliefs around you. And so environment produces outcomes, you know, environment supports outcomes. And so this in the psychedelic literature is called their set and setting. All of these things are things that, that hold and frame and direct the outcome. My observation of you is that you're this radical change agent who's really integrated. You are in so many different worlds and you are effective in all of them. That might be one of your, your superpowers, this amazing efficacy. Why are you drawn to psychedelics? Why are you drawn to the, the change that psychedelic therapies can enact? What, what is it about them that makes it valuable enough for you to spend your time on them? So my life has resolved, revolved excuse me, around the question of how we heal, particularly how we heal from trauma. And this was, at first, it was a personal investigation. Um, and I experienced just such a profound shift with the experience of medically provided psychedelic treatment that I was just like, it blew my mind in the way that psychedelics do. But what it did was it really uh, had me to challenge the traditional notions of mental illness that um, I had been exposed to. And I had to dig deeper into the frameworks that we understand medical outcomes. And so that really made me integrate from sociology how actually societal factors actually increase risk for mental illness. So really, can we look at mental illness and really think it's just biological and not understand how our society is creating stresses and people are literally displaying the signs of that, signs of that societal fatigue. And so I am deeply a spiritual person and so it was interesting that my healing came through a medicine that mm. occasions a spiritual experience right and so from that i started thinking deeper that you have to go into the spiritual world and heal things there before you can come back it's like you have to go into spirit heal in the spiritual realm come back and then your, your, the physical things can be healed, mm -hmm. right? You have to go to that place and do that spiritual work. And then, you know, your body, you can come back to this material plane and, and experience your healing. And so then maybe your, maybe your SS, SSRIs work better and et cetera, once you've gone and um, done the spiritual work. So that really expanded my understanding of, of healing, but because of my, who, who source universe, has incarnated me to be, I've always thought about healing from multiple perspectives, meaning I was born in this uh, working class, uh, deliciously chocolate body. And I, because of that, <laughs> you laugh, but I'm serious. No, <laughs> but um, I, because of that, I have a, res a responsibility and a calling to understand why did God give me this you know, what I once thought was a burden, you know, a mother who su suffered profoundly from mental illness, a background that was really, you know, affected by trauma. Why did God give me this burden, a uh, blessing, a uh, calling to really do 
this deep work to transition these experiences of pain into power for myself, right? Because now all of these experiences are giving me purpose. And, you know, my deeper dives into how we heal. Again, go to drmelody.com to uh, learn more about how we heal. But really, I've gotten to a place where I understand transformation. I understand that healing is possible. And so I don't, I no longer look at, at, at it just in the body of the individual. I look at it at, in the, the, uh, the corpus of our society. My vision, because I've looked at the vision of other, of other countries, you know, my vision, my belief is that this can be the last generation in America that's organized by white supremacy and anti-Black racism. Why? Because change and healing are possible. We look at um, post-apartheid South Africa and what was the revolution that was occasioned in one generation, right? We look at post-war Germany and how they denazify their, their country and make commitments to never be that again, right? And what cultural transformations did they, did they undergo to, in one generation, completely change their society, right? We look at the fall of the Berlin Wall and how two, two very separate, separate cultures had to come back together, both economically and culturally, right? And so we have societal examples how in one generation, people have healed and come back together and declared a new standard for who they're going to be in the world right? How they're going to live. Can you imagine if Nelson Mandela had not held the light in the flame of we are not going to retaliate and punish white people. Instead, we're going to heal the nation. One person, one commitment, one nation, one generation. We know that healing is possible medically. We know that healing is possible socially, civically. And we know that by changing our stories, about you, about me, about ourselves, about what's possible, through story medicine, we can heal. And so what stories are we gonna tell going forward? And how do we honor the loss of lives and bodies like George Floyd? And so how do we honor the spirit in us, so powerful, so capable, and the spirit in our nation, so powerful, so capable, one of the things that I hold is the United States is a country of excellence and we can be excellent in our love, right? We can be excellent in our safety for all people, right? But integration is literally to live the promises that you know, our constitution, our civic spirit promise for all people. I thank you for reflecting or giving me reflection of my wholeness. I really honor all the people who have really supported me and helped me to get me to this place that I've been so whole. As an anesthesiologist trained at UCSF, they build us tough. You know, we come out warriors. Mm -hmm. And my lineage from my grandmother, you know, I was built tough and strong, you know? I just, I, I really appreciate the reflection of my wholeness and I just wanna be here to serve and to share the vision that I've been given that, you know, again, from spiritual principles, as it is above, so it is below. Spirit, spirit's talking to me and saying that, we can do this, you know? I, th I thank you for the compliment on, on the integration. I just want to uh, share and inspire people also to hold the, the highlight of what, uh, high torch of what we can become together. 
but we are becoming together because the change in the work, uh, just the number, the, the sales of books like White, Fragi uh, White Fragility and Anti-Racism, like anti, anti, how to become an anti-racist, like those show a commitment and a desire to complete the work that we've already started. So there's so many people, don't, don't let the media get, you get it twisted. There's so many people who want to live their lives as love. There's so many people who want this to be the standard from which we live from. It sells to sow seeds of conflict, but I'm gonna make it highly profitable, practical, and reasonable to practice love, right? Dr. Melody Hayes, thank you so much for this message of hope and a message of inspiration that you're sowing with, the, with your life's work. Really appreciate you. Thank you so much, Sam. I really appreciate um, being here. And I just love your heart. There's something in you that's so just genuine and like supportive and like you are walking your path. And I just, I thank you for uh, just allowing us both moments to witness one another. So thank you mm. so much for your invitation and many blessings in your work. And please just continue to do the work of amplifying love and transformation. Thank you so mm. much. Thanks for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Michelle Broderick, Michelle McCrary, and Terry Gilby. Our music is by Nico Holloman. To find out more about the work of Dr. Melody Hayes, please visit her at drmelody.com, that's D-R-M-E-L-L-O-D-Y.com, or howweheal.net. <laughs>